Hello, and welcome to the Consumer VC, where we're going to be diving into the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and over a series of interviews, we're going to learn how early-stage B2C startups raise money and look into the inner workings of venture capital. If you're interested in consumer-facing startups, have your own B2C startup, or interested in venture capital, you've come to the right place. Feel free to also follow us behind the scenes on Twitter, at Mike Gelb, and for show updates, at Consumer VC. Our guest today is Nicole Quinn, a partner at Lightspeed Ventures, one of the most iconic venture capital firms. Some of Nicole's investments include Calm, Cameo, Zola, and Goop. So I'm really excited about this episode. It was an absolute pleasure having Nicole on, and I cannot wait to share it with you. So without further ado, here's Nicole. Nicole, thank you so much for coming onto the show. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. Thank you, Nicole. Uh, so what attracted you in the first place to venture capital? And what was the transition like working from Morgan Stanley and going towards early stage investing? Um, so uh, I had spent uh, many years at uh, Morgan Stanley, um, nearly a decade. And during that whole time, I was also angel investing. Um, and so I found myself, as soon as the market closed, um, I would rush out of the office and um, go and meet the companies that I had been angel investing in. You know, Morgan Stanley was great. I um, was an IA-rated analyst in retail and then um, sort of the general consumer internet world um, in London and New York. But I was so much more passionate about angel investing. I'd be working with these young founders who would be building towards their vision, creating jobs, creating growth, really solving a pain point for consumers, um, and uh, most of which were female founders. Um, and it really was a huge passion of mine and why I think I'm put on this surf um, to sort of help realize those, uh, those visions. And so I thought... Given I'm doing this as my side hustle, how do I make the side hustle the main hustle? And um, I left Morgan Stanley to go and work with a fintech startup, um, worked there uh, on the marketing side of things, and then actually started my own startup while at business school out, uh, out east. Pitched that startup to Lightspeed, and um, that is how I uh, met Lightspeed and then built a, a two-year relationship with them before joining. Wow, that's, that's awesome. So what was the transition like going from angel investing to, uh, to venture capital? Yeah, it really was um, a transition, um, but one that I have been thinking about for a while. Um, I actually was going to um, start a small fund called Athena VC um, with a great friend of mine, Adina Hafetz, um, who actually started uh, a great startup called Divi Homes. And um, Adina and I were going to run that as um, a small VC um, investing in um, all underrepresented minorities. And um, it was something that we were excited about. Um, and then I realized that um, if you look at the numbers, there are more women being funded at the pre family and friends, pre-seed, seed stage. But then when it comes to later stage investments, that's really where the numbers start to drop off. Um, so Shan, the CEO of Zola, raised her Series D last year in August. Um, and August 2018, and she was at that point the only female founder to have raised a Series D that year. 
I just looked at those numbers and I realized I could make a much greater impact by investing in terrific founders at all stages. Um, and so I didn't want to just do angel investing. I wanted to be able to do everything from you know seed all the way through to pre-IPO rounds. It was an exciting transition. Fortunately, I had a wonderful mentor in Jem- Jeremy Liu. Um, I do think that VC is an apprenticeship business. And so um, it was wonderful to be able to learn from somebody who is a Midas investor um, and just um, terrific um, as a thought partner. I think that's a very important point that you bring up about the disparity of investment in women-founded companies versus men-founded companies. I know that a third of Lightspeed's portfolio companies that you've invested in are founded by women, which is way higher than your typical venture capital firm. So what needs to change in the venture capital industry to eliminate this disparity? You are exactly right. A third um, of Lightspeed's consumer companies um, have female founders. You have done your research. I love it. And um, (laughs) I would say about 70% of my portfolio um, are companies uh, with at least one female founder. Um, So there's so much we can do. Um, I think that the fact that we're talking about it um, is number one. The fact that you know we and so many folks, Silicon Valley and now across the world, are focused on this um, and want to be investing in truly great founders who happen to be strong female CEOs um, and founders. And then there are other things which um, are more actionable. And so I would say women investors tend to have a greater network of women founders. And so having more um, female investors as part of your VC um, or as partners within that VC is certainly one way. Uh, So at Lightspeed now we have eight female investing partners um, out of about 20. It's uh, it's not quite half yet, but uh, we're certainly on the way. Um, and those, you know, eight female investors have such strong networks of great men and women. Um, one of my partners, Mercy, just joined us. She was head of growth at Slack. Um, Jana worked um, at Twitter. So we have so many amazing um, female investing partners at Lightspeed who have just like brought such a wealth and huge network um, and will allow that number to continue increasing. So we're excited about that. Yeah. Wow. I mean, eight out of 20 female partners, that's pretty significant. Of course, as you say, we're not quite there yet as we want it to be more 50-50, but that is certainly significant progress. Now, flipping gears a little bit and talk about your due diligence process. How do you assess founder market fit or if a company has product market fit? When we're looking at companies, I do love this idea of um, founder product fit or founder market fit. Um, and so many of the um, founders that we have spoken to, um, I think, are A, perfect for the company that they're building um, and B, perfect for the role in which they are in in that company. So take Cameo, for example, started by three founders, Stephen, Martin and Devon, um, and they are CEO, head of sales and CTO. Um, these three people, I feel like, were born to run a company, which is Cameo. Um, they are so true uh, to this business. They really um, live and breathe it. And what Cameo is, is it's a marketplace for influencers and celebrities um, to, at the moment, do a video shout out um, to, um, to their fans. Um, but in the future, it's going to be so much more than that. And so it's just a way really to connect with um, influencers and celebrities. 
Um, and Devon was, uh, he's the CTO. He's incredible. He used to work at Microsoft. He was also a Vine star. Um, and Les Stephen, the um, CEO, used to work at LinkedIn. He has an incredible network. And he is also just such a strong CEO. He's very steady. He's a person who, if he's having a good day or a bad day, you will never know because he is so consistent and strong. Um, he's also a great storyteller, a great person who hires the very best people we possibly can. Um, and Martin, the head of sales, I feel like could sell iced Eskimos. <laughs> he is brilliant um, and a huge network. Um, he used to be an agent uh, in the NFL. So um, they truly have um, found a product fit, all three of them. Um, and then you look at Sophia from Girlboss. Uh, I also feel like, you know, Sophia um, was made to do this. And uh, the same with Gwyneth Paltrow and Goop. Um, there really is that strong founder product fit that you mentioned. And then the second part of that question is really around um, how do you know when a startup has product market fit? And with that, we like to look at uh, companies and see leading indicators of a true brand being built. And um, what does that mean? Um, those leading indicators to us mean um, several different things. So um, maybe it is high NPS score showing that the customers love this, high referral rate showing that the customers want to tell their friends about this, high repeat rate, they love it so much they're coming back time and time again, um, a high organic percentage. And so it's not just finding out about it through Facebook or Instagram advertising, but actually friends are telling one another. And so that word of mouth effect is really strong. Um, there are multiple different things that um, show us um, that a true brand's being built. Uh, we do look at cohort analysis um, and different pieces of analysis to kind of show us that um, every single month the cohorts are getting stronger and stronger because people are really loving this product and um, that's when we get super excited about a particular product and founder. Thanks for bringing up the characteristics that you look for in founders. And I thought those were some excellent examples as well as some of the metrics that you use for measuring a brand. So what are some of the challenges when it comes to investing in consumer companies? So the challenges um, when evaluating consumer startup are um, certainly a plenty. I guess for us, you know, we certainly look at growth. Um, that is one factor. But growth alone is a challenge when looking at because there's lots of different growth hacking things that founders are able to do to really drive those growth numbers higher. Um, and so as a result, we really try to focus in on engagement and retention far more than growth. I actually just don't think you can look at any one of those pieces on its own. It really needs to be looked at as part of a bigger picture when analyzing companies. It's all well and good that the company's growing, but are people enjoying it? Are people coming back every day? Um, how long is each session that people are looking at it for? We're very focused on is something becoming a home screen app? And so one way to look at that is what are the daily active users divided by the weekly active users or divided by the monthly active users to really see whether a daily habit, a daily use case is being built there. And so uh, we do look for that strong engagement. Um, we typically look for companies that have over 30% DAU to MAU and um, a good um, number of minutes that's spent in every session. 
and uh, maybe they're coming back to the app several times a day as part of uh, those daily active users. So those are some of the things, but um, they all present challenges when they're looked at um, alone. So you, you really do need to look at them uh, together with uh, the broader picture uh, and speak to customers to really hear from customers themselves about what it is that's unique about the product and um, that's driving that behavior. That makes a lot of sense, focusing on engagement and, and uh, retention. What are some of the major turnoffs or deal breakers from startups when they pitch their businesses to you? What are the major turnoffs? I would say the most important thing to me is for a founder to always be honest and open and upfront about what's going on in the business. Any good investor is going to do um, proper diligence into the business. And it's always worrying if we find out something in the business that um, hasn't been you know, explained to us by um, the founders themselves. You can see patterns that are emerging when you're looking at the numbers. And so it's so much better if a founder says to us, hey, listen, so um, our margin came down over the last quarter because of X, Y, and Z. Or um, we had a drop in revenue over the summer. That is seasonality in this particular business model because of these reasons. Um, and so I would say it's calling out any anomalies, being open and upfront about anything that's um, unusual in the business so that you very much flag that before um, the investor sees it later. That makes sense. Having that transparency and trust with the founder. You wrote a post about uh, how this is the time to invest in media. And one of the monetization strategies that's becoming more popular is uh, subscription, using subscription in media as, oppo as opposed to advertising. When a media company thinks about transitioning from an advertising model to a subscription model, are there any specific metrics or goals that a media company should be focusing on when making a, the decision to convert or when's a good time to convert? So you're absolutely right that I think that the old definition of media, um, which is defined by your business model being in advertising revenue, it's tough. Right? I believe that 80% of advertising dollars are now going to Facebook and Google and over 90% of the growth of those dollars are going to uh, Facebook and Google. And so given that dynamic at play, a lot of these companies are thinking about how to drive other business models. And so consumer subscription to us is really interesting, especially when you look at premium paid content. In the US, we actually take it for granted that the content should be free. We can find it on YouTube and um, that we can find these pretty terrific podcasts, uh, such as yours, Mike, for free. Whereas um, in China, the podcast industry is worth tens of billions of dollars. And so people are used to paying for that, uh, that content. And I think that we're going to gradually move towards that model. You've already seen great apps such as Calm, where we're investors in. Um, and Calm have really been able to charge a monthly subscription or annual subscription because they have such premium content that allows people to meditate or listen to calming music or fall asleep with Matthew McConaughey or Stephen Fry reading you a story. And so as a result, customers are willing to pay for that. And also, they've put up their prices a couple of times as they've introduced more and more premium content in the app. And customers are very willing to pay for that. Uh, and so I do think that over time, we're going to see more consumer subscription businesses. And it's essentially the unbundling of cable. So people were used to paying 
say $100 a month for cable and instead maybe they're going to pay $10 a month for 10 different apps and uh, get their content uh, through there. Um, we're definitely seeing that's more of the way how Gen Z and millennials uh, want to um, ingest their content. Now, you, you brought up the example about uh, China and uh, podcasts. Is the reason why uh, podcasts are much more valuable uh, is because uh, Chinese consumers are just more used to paying for uh, for content than American consumers? Um, so, Lightspeed, we're lucky to be one of the um, only couple of firms to truly have a global presence. And so we have a China office, an India office, Israel and um, Silicon Valley, um, and also doing great efforts in Europe as well now. And so I would say within China, we're always talking to our China team. Um, James and Harry over there um, are some of the very best investors. Um, we're always talking to them about differences in consumer behavior. And so I would say with podcasts, um, yeah, the way that it started over there was very much that um, premium content was not given in a free way to the extent that it was in the US. And so people kind of grew up expecting to pay for that kind of content. That's very much part of the behavior over there. I would say that you know WeChat is another really interesting behavior over in the US where people have a messaging app akin to WhatsApp, but everybody buys things on there. They have their wallet on WeChat. They are able to purchase all different types of commerce products through WeChat. Um, and then as a result, you have companies like Pinduoduo, which our China team invested in, be worth tens of billions of dollars as a company which sits on top of what, uh, WeChat and allows um, commerce to occur on there. And so we're always thinking, is there going to be more of a commerce opportunity through messaging in the US? We have not seen that yet. Doesn't mean it won't come, but there's certainly interesting differences in behavior between consumers and either it won't come or um, it will. And we're just a little, uh, little bit further behind. I love that you brought up Pindodo and the convergence of social media and commerce that's happening in China. When conducting due diligence on startups in today's landscape, how do you think about price when evaluating startups as round sizes have continued to increase? So at Lightspeed, this is certainly something we're thinking about. Um, companies are now staying private for much longer. Um, and we are now into the 11th year of um, a bull run. And uh, long let that continue. Um, but uh, the interesting thing is that, you know, while companies do stay private for longer, we want to be a trusted partner to them as they go through that journey. So that's why we have our early stage fund as well as our growth stage fund. Um, and our growth stage fund really is to invest in those companies at the later stages. Um, but you're right. We are certainly seeing valuations creep up um, as a result of these larger rounds, as a result of more funds being raised. Um, there's just more money in the um, ecosystem overall. Um, I'd also say you're seeing a lot of public long onlys or hedge funds move downstream into um, private, um, more VC territory. Um, and so they're bringing more money into um, the ecosystem as well. And so as a result, valuations are moving up um, and that's something that uh, we're all very much aware of. Um, but for Lightspeed in particular, we want to be you know, that trusted long-term partner that's there for companies in the good times and the bad times. So trying to be 
very much consistent. Uh, Lightspeed was formed in January of the year 2000. And so we were there for people in the very, very good times. And then less than a year later through the tough times. So same thing in 2008, 2009. We really want to be there as like, you know, a trusted capital partner and thought partner as prices do move around. So that's something that's important to us. And I'd imagine as an investor, time allocation across your portfolio uh, would be is rather difficult uh, just because uh, you know, you only have a limited amount of time. Uh, do you tend to spend most of your time focused on uh, the startups that you've invested in that are uh, maybe performing um, or are quote unquote the winners or those that are still uh, maybe struggling to find their way? So I try and um, be pretty balanced around this. And I also try and make sure that I'm there for companies 24-7. I have my phone always on. Um, and whether it be late in the evening, um, I was on the phone at 11 p.m. last night to a startup and again at like 7 a.m. this morning. For me, I don't try and break it up so much in terms of how they're doing, but it's more when and where they need help and just making sure that when there's a question that is being asked, when some hiring that needs to be done, I'll sort of step in and do those interviews and help the founder and be a real thought partner in going through some strategy, flying to Chicago, New York, LA, or wherever I need to be. I'd say it's less about where they are in their cycle and more about just where we can add the most value. Awesome. And what's, what's one thing you would change about venture capital? For me, as I think about the overall industry, there's so many terrific um, women and all underrepresented groups starting terrific businesses. Often these are very fast-growing businesses. Often these are profitable businesses. These are well-run businesses. Um, And so I would love to see more and more VCs investing in all underrepresented groups. Um, and really seeing the the ecosystem change as a result. Um, I think when you look at the S&P, there's such a tiny percentage of female CEOs, let alone female uh, CEOs who also founded their companies. I know that that will change over time, and I just want to be a catalyst in helping us get there faster. I completely agree. I think there's a lot of work to be done in venture capital being more inclusive to minority and women founders and partners. So what's one of your favorite books that has impacted you personally and one of your favorite books that has impacted you professionally? So one of my favorite books, which has been my favorite book since I was about eight years old, is Enid Blyton's The Folk of the Faraway Tree. It's a really terrific book for anybody out there who has an incredible imagination, um, is curious because at every single day they go to the tree and they find a new land at the top of the tree and they realize that anything is possible they can do whatever they want. Um, and so it's really a great book around thinking big, thinking what could today hold um, and really going for it. And my favorite business book is definitely Shoe Dog, uh, which is equally inspiring. So I would recommend both of those. Very cool. I'll definitely have to check both of them out. Uh, so what's, what's one company that you recently invested in or worked with that you're really excited about? So there is a company um, which we invested in over a year ago, and it just launched last week, um, which is Lady Gargal's business, House, H-A-U-S, so houselabs.com. And uh, House is a beauty business, uh, which has started with cosmetics, 
and uh, we'll go into a full array of uh, beauty products. Um, and what's been special about this company is really building it with Lady Gaga. Um, she always likes to say, this ain't no licensing deal. This is very much her company. She, <laughs> she says, I have my fingerprints all over this company, so much so it's a crime scene. And um, I mean, she is so passionate about this. There is not a single color or product or brand model or anything to do with the company that has been decided on without her being a part of that decision. So she's hugely involved um, and has hired every single executive in the company. The CEO, Ben Jones, is somebody that um, we used to work with um, at the Honest Company for many years. He is a terrific CEO. Um, also CAA introduced us and they have been a wonderful partner. I think that this is definitely one that uh, people should check out and take a look at because it's, uh, it's going to be one to watch. Yeah, I was reading about House Laboratories and Lady Gaga and her mission of making makeup more affordable. I think it's really, really cool. That's a really good point because people often ask why we partnered with Amazon and everything about this brand is really democratizing beauty. So as you say, the price points are affordable so that everybody can get them. We partnered with Amazon so that her fans in Japan and England, as well as in the US, can get them. Um, and so I think it's really special to think about a brand that is really available to everybody. Yeah, it's really cool what she's building. So what's one company that you should have invested in, but you didn't? Great question. And I feel like there will be lots of people who uh, <laughs> will have a similar answer. But uh, we spent time with uh, Glossier um, about three years ago. Everything that I look for in terms of um, that leading indicator of a true brand being built is something that they have done. Um, so that's certainly one on the commerce side. And then on the gaming side, it was 2015 when we sat down with a company and they did not have the game that we know of it as today, but um, it was Neantic Labs said, we're thinking about doing a strategic partnership, uh, which was very smart of them to do um, that with Nintendo uh, before launching Pokemon Go. Um, and so that would certainly be the second one that uh, I wish that um, we'd invested in. Wow. Thank you for sharing those two stories. So what's one piece of advice that you have for consumer companies looking to raise capital? I always say when you're thinking about storytelling, when you're thinking about hiring, when you're thinking about your any aspect of your business, really think big in that storytelling because this is not just what are you doing for the next year this is you building this hopefully over the next decade and what the world will look like as a result of having your company in it so all the very best companies have all started with actually a smaller market like eBay and Beanie Babies or Uber and Black Cars or Airbnb and uh, Sleepy on Couches, but they've expanded into a huge market. And so I love that idea of thinking big, thinking about really creating a market, transforming a market. And uh, that's the advice I would give to founders when talking about your startup. Thinking big, I think that's excellent advice because you know this is a company that you're going to be building for years and years. Well, Nicole, thank you again for coming on to the show. This has been absolutely terrific. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. This was uh, this was fun. And there you have it. It was an absolute pleasure having Nicole, and I really appreciate her sharing her insights and coming on to the show. 
if you want to keep an update on Nicole, you can you can catch her on Twitter at Nick underscore Quinn. That's N I K underscore Q U I N N. If you enjoyed the episode, which since you're still listening, hopefully you have, we would love it if you could rate, review, and subscribe on your podcast app. If you have any suggestions on how we can make the podcast better, feel free to send me a DM on Twitter at Mike Gelb. That's M-I-K-E-G-E-L-B. If you want to follow along behind the scenes, you can also follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb and at ConsumerVC. You are also welcome to check out www.theconsumervc.com where you can find all episodes. Thank you again and until next time.